Hey folks, we've got a live show coming up for you next week in New York City on October 4th. We are taking over the WNYC performance space in Lower Manhattan for an evening of banter, debate, and discussion, and of course, your questions. So I'm looking at our stats right here, and New York State is the second biggest market for us in terms of listenership. That means there are tens of thousands of you out there right now with a chance to get the last of our seats at this live show. So pull out your phone, click the link at the top of our show notes, and get your tickets today. We can't wait to see you there and hopefully hear your questions and maybe have a cocktail together. This week, we've got another edition of What It Takes, why one man spent 15 years of his life obsessed with flying a solar airplane around the world. We gave a new understanding of the level of complexity that renewable energies can solve. You can do everything. If you can fly around the world in a solar airplane, you can do everything. We're going to hear from Bertrand Picard. He's a Swiss balloonist turned futurist, and he co-piloted Solar Impulse, the first solar electric plane to navigate the globe. Picard is a super inspiring guy, and I don't say that lightly because I think we feature a lot of very inspiring people on this show. But Picard stands out. His entire mission was to do the impossible, risking his life and his co-pilot's life so he could help everyone see what is possible with renewable energy. And it's definitely in his blood. Picard's father was an oceanographer who pioneered deep-sea exploration. His grandfather developed the first pressurized cabin so he could travel up into the upper atmosphere. Oh, and his grandfather also wrote about the need to build solar energy in the 1940s. Powerhouse CEO Emily Kirsch sat down with Picard, and they talked about the 15 years of work that went into this historic flight, and also about the deep family history that influenced him. Normally, these interviews are recorded in front of a live studio audience at Powerhouse. This one is a straight-up one-on-one. If you're in the Bay Area, though, you can always find out more about live events at Powerhouse in Oakland at powerhouse.fund. And of course, for all you East Coasters, if you're itching for some live and lively conversations, don't forget about our live show in New York City on October 4th. Get your tickets by following the link in the show notes. And now, Emily Kirsch and Bertrand Picard. Okay, going back to the very beginning, tell us a little bit about where you're from, uh, where you were raised, and what you were like growing up. I'm born in Switzerland, and when I was a child... My father did not tell me about fairy tales, but about stories of exploration, because my grandfather invented the pressurized cabin, and and I was lucky enough to meet the American astronauts. I met Charles Lindbergh. I met a lot of environmentalists, explorers, mountain climbers. So I always dreamt of being an explorer. But as a teenager, you don't know what to explore and how to explore. So I was a little bit depressed as a teenager, I did not know how to fulfill my dreams until I understood that I needed a compass in my head with a needle showing the unknown instead of the north. So each time there was something new that had never been done, I, I was trying. So hang gliding in the beginning of this sport in, uh, in Europe in the 70s, then uh, micro light flying. I did a lot of aerobatic. And, and, and then I became a balloonist and I made the first flight around the world nonstop in a balloon. How old were you at that point? I was 41. Wow. That's 20 years ago, 19 years ago. Mm-hmm. And this was the beginning of Solar Impulse. 20 days nonstop in the air, and there was no fuel left when I landed. 
wow. you know, I, I was fortunate just to be able to, to make it and to succeed. Wow. And then I thought, if we want to fly longer, if we want to fly forever, you cannot have fuel because fuel is the limit. It's not the sky that is the limit. It's the fuel that's the limit. And then I started to dream about a solar-powered airplane that would fly around the world. And here was Solar Impulse. You know, an airplane with photovoltaic cells on the wing, batteries with the engines, electric engines. So you fly during the day. It allows you to run your engines, to charge your batteries, to spend the night in the air to make a first cycle. And then you can reproduce these cycles as much as, as you want. So you can reach perpetual flying. And this is what we needed to be able to cross oceans with solar power. What year was this that you had the idea for Solar Impulse? It was in 1999, at the end of the flight around the world with a balloon. Started to work on it in 2002. 2003, a feasibility study at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology. That's where I met André Borschberg, who became my partner for this project. And uh, then, well, 15 years of work. It was twice as long and four times as expensive as I anticipated. Uh -huh. But you must be used to it with startups. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> some crises, some failures. Mainly everybody telling us it was impossible. Or let's say all the experts of aeronautics telling us it was impossible. Which means that we had to build a plane with a shipyard. Because they did not know it was impossible. Wow. And, and they helped us with carbon fiber structures and so on. And we could have a structure that was 10 times lighter, proportionally to the size, 10 times lighter than any competition glider. So it's really, technically speaking, it was fantastic the way it became energy efficient. Because this was the, the big thing. You need to be energy efficient so you can cope with a little radiation from the sun in order to fly 24 hours a day. Yeah. When people told you it was impossible, and it sounds like everyone was saying it was impossible, what did you tell yourself? I said it's normal that they tell that. They told to my grandfather it was impossible to go to the stratosphere. They told to my father it was impossible to dive seven miles down. So I'm used to have people telling me it's impossible. It stimulates me. For, for me, it just makes people stupid. You know, <laughs> if they say it's impossible, they, they just are not able to change the paradigm they have in, in their head. Mm -hmm. If you have not enough sun to fly a normal airplane, you have to build an airplane that is not normal, an airplane that will just be so energy efficient that it will work with the energy you get from the sun. Mm -hmm. So it's a way also to demonstrate to the world that the goal is not always to increase the energy production, the goal is to be more energy efficient. And solar impulse was really an example of how to be efficient, how to be logical by using the right materials, the right technologies. And uh, that, that, that was a, a beautiful challenge for the team because they knew that they ho had to work on building a plane, but also building a symbol, a tool that could be used by the political world to, to have a new approach on renewable energy. Mm -hmm. So it was really a very powerful symbol. Yeah. And you, how did you know how to do this? Because it sounds like you were trained as a psychiatrist, psychologist, not, did you study engineering? Did you study aerospace? No, no, if I was an engineer, I would have known it was impossible. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, as a psychiatrist, it was, it was perfect because it allowed me to bring people together, to, to bring partners together, leading the team that built the plane. And uh, I had to, to learn how to fly an airplane because I was a balloonist and flying hang gliding and micro lights, but not airplanes. How so was I, it learning how to fly? 
Well, it's fun to learn how to fly a normal plane, and then when you start on the flight simulator with solar impulse and you crash the plane at every landing, <laughs> I think, wow, it's not going to give a good image of me to the professional pilots that were making the safety measures around solar impulse. Wow. So I had to, although it was my project, I, have to, I had to fight my way to, to be the pilot of the plane also. Yeah. But it's a little challenge. You know, that's the sentence I told to the team and to myself all the time. If, it's, if it was easy, somebody else would have done it. Mm -hmm, no, mm -hmm. it was difficult, but it was really interesting because when you do something for the first time, you're not in your comfort zone. And this is what stimula stimulates you to be more performant, to be more creative. You're obliged to, to do better. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you were enabled to do all this work and to do better because of the backers, like who was funding this and how did you get the money and did they say this is impossible and you're crazy? All the specialists of aviation and energy did not want to put any money in. They were laughing, they said you can never do that. So all the sponsors, the partners who brought money and technology came from other worlds. Uh, other worlds. It was insurance, It was uh, watches, it was elevators, it was chemical companies. Uh, Google supported us also. We had champagne brand, we had telecommunication. You had a champagne brand sponsoring Impulse? Yeah. Was there champagne at every stop? Yeah, there was champagne at every landing, but in a plastic bottle. Nobody knows that, but it's prohibited to bring a glass bottle on the runway. Mm. Because if you break the bottle, it can punch holes in the tires of the plane so it was always plastic balls <laughs> makes sense, makes sense. and so and what was your pitch to them how did you get them to to back it and how much did you have to raise to do this it was at the end 170 million dollars uh, which is a lot of money in a way and uh, but when you see that a football player cost 220 million to go from a club to another club You see that it's very relative. <laughs> it, at, at the end, you, you know, it's money that was well used. It was over 15 years, paying salaries, buying technology, uh, developing new systems. And, um, and I, I think the pitch was really that these companies wanted to be part of something that was impossible in order to stimulate internally their own teams, their innovation process, participate by making products for the plane and, and, and demonstrating their, their will to support sustainability, to support innovation for, for a better world. Mm -hmm. So we really had partners with whom we had fantastic relations and uh, it was not real sponsoring, it was not publicity, it was a partnership about trying to make something possible mm -hmm. altogether. Mm -hmm. Did you ever think that you weren't going to be able to raise the money that you needed? Were you ever afraid of the money running out? Uh, yes, sometimes we were two months away from bankruptcy. Oh, wow. And uh, each time we thought, we have to find other, other solutions. And, and, and we did. But what is very, very heavy on the shoulders is that you have to be everywhere all the time meeting as many people as possible. And usually I, I met partners when I was giving speeches. And at the end of the speech, there were people who thought, wow, that's a great project, let's be part of it. And they came to me and said, let's speak, and you have to meet my CEO and so on. So at the end, I could not refuse any request for speaking engagement because 
I thought maybe I will miss the sponsor I need now, you know. So it was it was mm -hmm, crazy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Going back to when you returned from the the trip around the world in the air balloon, how did you go from that to I want to pilot a solar powered plane around the globe? Like how did you make that jump? Those are two pretty different things and the fact that air balloons have existed for so long but you were talking about creating something from scratch that had never been done before like where did the idea come from from the fact that i saw the limit of flying with fuel with the balloon we were out of fuel when i landed well there were 40 kilos 80 pounds left from the 8,000 pounds of fuel i had when i took off so it's clear that if you want to fly longer, you have to change the paradigm and get rid of the fuel. And I always understood how much technology can help the environment. When my father made the dive to the Barina Trench, his goal was to show that there was life down there in a period of time where the governments wanted to dump their radio radioactive waste. And he saw a fish, and when he came back with Don Walsh, his colleague from the US Navy, uh, they said, look, there was a fish down there so if you drop radioactive waste, these currents will bring them everywhere in the ocean. So mm -hmm. that was the beginning of the protection of the oceans. And it sounds like it worked, that they and were protected as a result. Yeah, yeah, and they were protected from radioactivity, from, mm -hmm. from chemical waste, but not from plastic. And mm -hmm. what we see today is an absolute disaster. Mm -hmm. You know, it's absolutely crazy to see how much human beings can damage the place where they live. If, if, if a company was managed like the world is managed, the CEO would go in jail immediately for mismanagement. But we allow governments to accept things that are unacceptable. This is maybe why I feel good in California. You know, in California, you have a government that is really proactive. Uh, when you have a law that has just been signed by the governor, Jerry, Jerry Brown, to have 100% of renewable energy in 2045. This is gorgeous, it's, it's fantastic. You know, when I come in California, I think, well, that's the place to be. But now, of course, the rest of the world is not following this example, and mm -hmm. there's a lot of work now to bring the, the other governments to take measures. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, Solar Impulse is certainly similar to California in that it's a beacon of light and hope for the world to see what's possible as it relates to clean mm -hmm. energy. Um, in and I tell you that flying over the Golden Gate with solar impulse, that was fun. I bet. Yeah, when I flew from Hawaii, it was a three-day flight to, to arrive in San Francisco. And when you see the Golden Gate, you think, wow, for more than 100 years, there were so many people coming here to find the land of freedom. And today, freedom is to get rid of fossil fuels. It's to be able to fly forever. There's new technologies that... Mm -hmm. and we have to, to take it. Mm -hmm. Tell us about, about those moments. And, and so you, you raised the money, you built the plane. Were there any moments too in building the plane where you thought it wasn't, wasn't going to work? Other people told you it was possible. Did you ever think it was impossible? The first airplane, first prototype that was smaller. And then when we were building the second one, the main spar, that means the big piece that holds the, the center of the wing, broke. And that was one year of conception and one year of construction. And it exploded during the load test. Were you there when it exploded? No, Audrey was not there either. They were just engineers who were making the test. And then we were really 
devastated. And we thought, maybe it's the end of the project. And instead of thinking, what do we lose? We thought, what are we going to gain? And we gained one year. They needed one year to rebuild it. And during that time, we took the first airplane. It was in 2013. We brought it to Moffett, next to uh, San Francisco, Moffett Air Base. And we crossed the US with the first prototype. And it was the most successful mission we had to rehearse for the around the world. And that's when we met, uh, oh, no, I, I knew Larry Page and Sergey Brin already, but that's when I saw them again, and they accepted to support us with Google, and it saved the project. So maybe without the, the destruction of the main spar, would have not been so successful with the project. And this is a big learning. When you have a crisis, when you have a failure, you can also use the positive part of it as an advantage. Mm -hmm. Like in a balloon, you know in a balloon, and this is fantastic in a philosophical way, when you change altitude in your balloon, you find other layers of wind which have another direction. And I think it's exactly the same in life. If you change altitude in your mind, in your way of thinking, life will take you in other directions. It has taken you in a very exciting direction. What was it like getting into the plane the first day of takeoff? It's a single-seater airplane, which means that you train on the flight simulator. Well, the test pilot did it, but for you, it's the first time you are in the plane. Nobody can help you anymore. And it's really difficult to fly because it's very slow, very light, and you with a huge wingspan. So it's completely unstable. And you always have to fight to keep it stable. So you know that you have one hour to train during the first flight to make a successful landing. And if you damage the plane, you ruin the project. So the responsibility you have on your shoulders when you fly the plane is extremely high. Mm -hmm. And you know that all the team is watching and says, is this guy going to break mm -hmm. the plane that mm -hmm. we've built? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and is it just you? Are you the only person in the plane? One at a the time, there's one seat. Uh -huh. So some flights were made by André, some mm -hmm. flights were made by me. Okay. And how long was each flight? How many days? When we're flying above land, we're not allowed to sleep because of air traffic control. So the flights were, for solar impulse, they were short. It was 24 hours. Mm -hmm. No other plane would fly so long, but mm -hmm. <laughs> for us, it was short. Yeah. And when we were crossing oceans, it was uh, two, three, four, five days. Wow. And, and this, this is absolutely amazing. When you know that you don't need to land, and when, you, when you're just in the middle of the ocean, in a completely experimental airplane, and you know nobody has done that before you, but you have to succeed. And you have a, an awareness of the moment, and con consciousness of what you're doing, a concentration, a level of performance, that you don't have in normal life in, when you are in the routine. So I, I can really remember every, every second of it, mm -hmm. not even every minute, every second of it. Everything I felt, I thought, I saw. I really wanted to engrave in myself all these impressions because I knew I would never live something like mm -hmm. that again. Mm -hmm. What was the, was there, you remember so much of it, but was there one thing that, that really stood out to you that, was different than what you thought it would be? The strawberry moon. You know what is the strawberry moon? It's the full moon, the day of the summer solstice. It's completely red. And it was when I was flying from New York to Europe. 
And I had this moon just showing me the path. It was absolutely gorgeous. Mm. Mm. Other moments that were very symbolic also for me, uh, between, between Hawaii and San Francisco, it was Earth Day, 22nd of April. And I was connected live to Ban Ki-moon, Secretary General of the United Nations, and we could talk together, and he was with the heads of state signing the Paris Agreement in New York. Wow. So that moment, I was live on the, on the screen of, uh, of the United Nations, and we were talking about the importance now of having pioneers also in the political world and showing that all these new clean tech solutions, they are profitable. It's not only to save the planet, it's also a business that is going to create jobs and sustain growth. So it was it was really important moment for me because that was the type of message I was really keen to give from Solar Impulse. So I will never forget that moment. I think I was more emotions and more stressed, you know, to be sure that the communication would work than when I was taking off with, with the airplane. <laughs> you were more stressed about the, the communications than flying the plane. Yeah, because, you know, if, if the communication had failed with Ban Ki-moon at that moment, lost the satellite or yeah. a problem with a sat phone, it would have ruined the entire thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, what were the scariest moments? Were there ever, were you ever close to having any accidents or clouds and <laughs> tell us about tell there us was about sometimes the scary big times. turbulences and turbulence are difficult to handle with this plane but i really think that i was never as scared in the air than on the ground on the ground i was so often scared of having not enough money to continue technical problem no overflight permissions from some countries uh, weather problems. Uh, you know, once we had just had the hangar, it was an inflatable hangar, and it deflated on the structure of the airplane. That was in Dayton during the crossing of, uh, of America. And uh, we thought we were going to lose the plane just because of the pressure of the hangar pressing on the wings. And when you have such a fragile airplane, you have so many moments where you're afraid of losing it. Mm -hmm. that, that was the most scary thing, I believe. Hmm. was on the ground. On the ground, huh. yeah. Huh. And I know it I was never. I was never afraid to fly. Mm -hmm. I was always afraid not to be able to fly. <laughs> I know at one point, your engineers that were working on the plane on the design before you were in the air, they some of them quit saying, this isn't safe and I don't feel like I can work on this in good conscience. What was that like for you and, and how did you recover? No, that was one specific moment. They, they never said that except once... It was the flight from Japan to Hawaii. That was André, who was flying in that moment, and I was in the mission control center in Monaco. And there was a little problem on the monitoring system of the autopilot. And the engineer said, the airplane is not nominal, André has to come back to Japan. And we spoke, André and I, on the sat phone, and we decided not to come back to Japan. It would have been the end of the project. You come back to Japan, there would be an investigation, the plane would be grounded, because it would be an emergency landing. So we said, we don't do that. The weather is good, and we continue. Mm. And uh, the engineers were crying, begging us to come back to Japan. They were saying we were completely insane. One of them wrote, how, are two, how is the world going to understand that two leaders don't listen to their specialist engineers and experts? Well, if we had listened to them, project would be finished. So we did not listen, we continued, 
and we succeeded the flight around the world. But it's really interesting to show these two worlds that go together. You have the world of the engineers and the expert. They had to build the plane. They needed safety measures. They needed to be very, very careful and follow very strict rules. But when the plane was built, then it was not engineering anymore. It was exploration. And in exploration, you have to do the leap of faith. Otherwise, you will never succeed. You, you need to lose what you have behind and see nothing in front and be in the middle of the unknown. This is exploration. Mm. Otherwise, it's business as usual. Mm-hmm. And was it the, what was the, what was the, the error, the challenge that the plane was having? The monitoring system of the autopilot did not work, which means that the pilot could not be woken up by this system if there was a big turbulence or another problem. Um, and what really pissed off the engineers is the fact that we had three systems to monitor the autopilot, but the only one who was officially certified is the one who failed. <laughs> the, we still had two other systems, and that's how André could continue, and it worked very well. Yeah, okay, okay. Um, what came easily in this process and what didn't? Nothing came easily. Nothing came easily. Everything was difficult to obtain. And uh, what we learned, Audrey and I and our team, is the importance of being persistent, the importance of accepting frustration, sometimes even accepting humiliation, what was but humiliating? just continue. You know, when you are uh, just very close from being bankrupt and people just say you are useless and uh, somebody told us you mismanaged this project and, and things like that, okay, you have to accept it and continue. So going through a lot of doubts, a lot of moments of fears, and understanding that it's normal. It's normal. If you want to be an entrepreneur, if you launch your startup, it's exactly the same. And today, if you want to change the world and make it a better place with new energy, new systems, new technologies, you also need the same persistency. You also need to accept being humiliated by the old world, the world who does not believe in progress and sustainability, the world that believes that we will always burn oil and always have to damage the planet to have growth. Uh, it's wrong, but they believe they are right. And they're still very powerful. Sometimes you feel very small in front of all that, and you understand that you have to be persistent and continue nevertheless. And you know that at the end you will succeed. Mm. Do you feel like you're continuing the legacy of your grandfather and father and their explorations? Yes, yeah, completely. You know, my, my grandfather wrote an article in 1942 about the importance of shifting to solar power. Wow. So I think he, if I could have spoken to him about solar impulse, he would have found it completely obvious, <laughs> completely obvious. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, did you have mentors or people who you could turn to when, when some people were saying, you know, this is worthless or you're mismanaging it? Who did you, did you have anyone to turn to? We turned, well, to my wife, Michelle, because she always supported me to do the next step. You know, never to stop where I was, always to make one more step to be more successful. 
So in that sense, it was really the project of a couple. And of course, with André, André Borschberg, we are very, very different, which means that we're never in fear at the same moment. When he was down, I could support him. When I was down, he could support me. This is also the importance of working with people who are different. If you think the same and have the same solutions, you're always having the same problem at the same time, and it doesn't work. <laughs> so true. Was Michelle supportive of you throughout the whole trip? Did she ever say, you shouldn't do this, it's too dangerous? No, no, she always supported me. She was working with me full-time, more than full-time. She was responsible of the institutional communications, so all the message about clean technologies, renewable energy, the way to, to phrase it, the way to communicate it. So when, when I was flying, she was working also. <laughs> she was never the, the woman behind. She was the woman next to me, and sometimes she was leading. Mm -hmm. She started the speech once saying, I'm the pilot of the pilot. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good description. Um, what do you think is different as a result of this journey? During the COP23 in Bonn last year, the director general of the energy for the European Commission started this speech saying solar impulse has changed the vision we have about renewable energy. And uh, I was really pleased to hear that because I think we gave we gave a new understanding of the level of complexity that renewable energies can solve. You can do everything. If you can fly around the world in a solar airplane, you can do everything. Because who can do the most can do the least. And of course, what you can do in the air, you can do it on the ground in every, every possible field. So I think it also opened the way to electric airplane programs, this for sure. And I tell you that in less than eight years, uh, you will have electric airplanes transporting 50 people. I'm precise because two years ago, I said in 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> so the countdown has started. Wow. In eight years, you think we'll have planes yes. transporting yes. 50 people that are yes. solar entirely solar powered? Yeah. No, electric. 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 Okay, I was going to say. You know, <laughs> solar impulse is an electric plane yeah. that produces its own electricity with the sun. So I think in the future, the first step will be electric airplanes with batteries that will be charged on the ground. But it can be solar energy around the airport charging the batteries, mm -hmm. which will allow also to have airplanes landing very close to cities during the night, disturbing nobody, making mm -hmm. no complaints from mm -hmm. the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's also an example that if you are cleaner, you are more, profi more uh, profitable and you also offer more service to the consumer. Um, what what are you up to now, now that this incredibly dangerous but inspiring and successful trip around the world is complete? Um, what are you doing now? Now it's the second phase of Solar Impulse. The first phase was symbolic. It was give the credibility to the idea. Now the second phase is much more down to earth. It's about selecting 1,000 solutions that can be products, processes, technologies, programs, or whatever, that can actively protect the environment but in an economically profitable way. And the goal is to have 1,000 of these solutions that receive the label solar impulse efficient solution and make a portfolio to be brought to the governments, heads of states, big corporations, CEOs, institutions, 
to show them what are the solutions that already exist, that are already profitable, that can help them to have more ambitious energy policies and environmental targets. And for startups and companies who are hearing this and they think to themselves, I'm one of those companies, uh, how do they learn more? Well, they can come on the website, solarimpulse.com, or contact me or contact people of my team. And um, they can join the 1,150 companies that already joined us. They submit a solution or several solutions. And these solutions are assessed, evaluated by external experts who are completely independent. And uh, if they reach the standard that we have set, then they receive the label, which is an additional proof that they are credible, but also a proof that they are profitable. And today, we absolutely have to speak the language of the people we want to convince. Because if we just speak about protecting the environment, the industry will say we have salaries to pay at the end of the month. We cannot change everything today. And they postpone the decisions and nothing will happen. Mm. So if you show that it's an opportunity for the business to make more money, it will work. And today, the, the biggest industrial market is to replace the old polluting systems that are inefficient by modern systems. You know, when you have systems of air conditioning that consume so much energy just because you create cold, instead of taking the cold where it is, for example, in the bottom of the oceans, it saves so much money to do that, the, the SWAC, uh, so, uh, seawater air conditioning. When you see all the efficient systems you can put to consume less energy in a house, in a car, when you have the new industrial processes, when you desalinate water with solar energy, all these type of things, this is the way to be more energy efficient. This is the way to be more profitable. And all the infrastructure we have today has to be replaced. Can you imagine the opportunity for the people who understand it? They're going to make a huge profit out of it. That's why we're investors. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> um, so you've said where you think uh, electric-powered aviation will be in eight years. Where will you be in eight years? In eight years, I hope I will have achieved the next round the world, which is with a portfolio of the thousand solutions to, to touch all the heads of states and all the governments. And if we can do that, I think we will be in a phase where we will be actively helping the implementation of these solutions. You know, the governments are going, to help to, are going to ask us to help them with specific problems that all the startups we know are going to solve. So all these solutions, they belong to the startups, but we, we can help the governments to pull these innovations to the market by creating a need with a legal framework that is much more ambitious than the one we have today. Mm -hmm. Today, in the rest of the world, I'm not speaking about California that is so, so much pioneering and so much in advance, but most of the countries have regulations that do not encourage any change, which is a huge mistake. Mm -hmm. So I will be actively involved in helping governments to, to change with all these solutions. Mm -hmm. Do you think you have another trip like this or idea like this in you after this around the world tour with the companies will there be another solar impulse like adventure that you go on or was this was this it you know i went twice around the world with a balloon and with solar impulse and there there is a contradictory saying in french one says never two without three 
<laughs> and the other one says two is fine, three is too much. <laughs> and I don't know which one to, imp to apply. <laughs> uh, what does your gut tell you? If there is something really interesting and useful, I will go for it. But not just to do world records or things that have already been done and that you just try to do better. What I like is to do a first, mm -hmm. not just a record. <laughs> so if there are other opportunities for big firsts that are useful, that can open the doors of making a better world, yes. That's great. We are going to move into our high voltage round. So quick, qu quick questions with quick answers. The first question is, if you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? I would be a swimming eagle or a flying dolphin. Tell us more. <laughs> I like to combine different elements. If you are just in one element, you get used to it. But when you change from an element to another, then you have to focus, you have to concentrate, you have to gain some awareness and consciousness. And this makes you more performant. Are these actual animals? Are there... No, no. That's why you have to invent. You're making it up. Ones. Okay, just not not actual flying, but you know, if a dolphin could jump really high, I don't know if there's something called a flying dolphin. What inspires you? To try things that have never been done before, and to understand that doubts and question marks are stimulations for creativity. If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? I would have loved to be a singer. But I don't know how to sing. I sing completely <laughs> wrong. And when at home I try to sing, my children shout, Daddy, shut up or close the door. <laughs> so if I do a new career in that direction, I will need to learn how to sing. But I also had to learn how to fly an airplane. So maybe it's maybe, maybe there's a way. Did you sing while you were in the plane? Yes. Did you, ever, did you have music in the plane? Yes, I had music in the plane, but everything was live on the internet. So the team sometimes told me, you know, you take a lot of risk when you sing. <laughs> what was your favorite song to sing? Or what I, type of music? Well, I, I love Leonard Cohen. Really loved it. And when I was flying across the Atlantic with Solar Impulse, one of the people of my team with my wife made a surprise and they told me, try to look in one of the boxes on your far left. And I went, picked up something, opened it, and it was a book of poems from Leonard Cohen that were personally dedicated from Leonard Cohen to me. Wow. And I opened it in, in the air on the Atlantic, and it was a few months before Leonard Cohen passed away. Wow, wow. That's special. Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? To, well, to the people who supported me during the during this process so my wife michelle and all the team uh, but also to all the one who inspired me and showed me what was possible and uh, i would say people like charles Lindbergh, people like neil armstrong the astronauts of the american space program you know when i was between 10 and 12 I was living close to cape kennedy and i met most of these astronauts and they were normal people, but completely passionate. And they took time to speak with me, to explain me what they were doing, why they were doing it. And uh, that really inspired me to see that they were not superheroes, not supermen. They were people with a dream and committing themselves to fulfill the dream. And that was really an example for me. Mm. When have you failed? 
Oh, I failed a lot of times. Uh, before flying around the world with a balloon successfully, I failed twice. Um, when I was making an aerobatic demonstration with my hang glider, the hang glider broke. I almost killed myself and I had to pull the emergency parachute. Wow. I wanted to make a big success, financial success, by having double seating uh, micro light planes flying in very nice touristic places. So that was my first startup. And when I lost as much money as I thought I would gain, <laughs> uh, I stopped. <laughs> um, otherwise, I think I had some nice success. <laughs> what is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? Hmm. I remember how much I promoted biofuels 10 years ago. <laughs> 10 years did. ago, yeah. <laughs> before realizing that it was not sustainable, it was competing against food, it needed more energy to create than to use. Uh, so this is something I thought, well, maybe I, I, I made a mistake. Now, now you have biofuels of third or fourth generation, and now I support it again. But before it was first and second generation, it was not, not the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. When are you your best self? My best self, when I am in an adventure, when I'm out of my comfort zone, and when I feel that I am completely confident to do things that are completely crazy. And, and this, this is really enjoyable. When I was in the middle of an ocean at night, alone in the cockpit of Solar Impulse and feeling so well, mm. just because I was aware of what I was doing, I was fully myself. What is your worst trait? When I am with people who are dishonest or completely unlogical, it really drives me mad. And then I can really sometimes be very, very mean and angry. If there was just one person listening to this podcast, who would you want it to be? If we speak about profitability of clean technologies and how to make America great again with clean technologies and renewable energy, it would be your president. Because I think that his goal can be, can be fulfilled much better with renewable energies creating more jobs than to go back on coal. When was the last time you were scared? Um... During the solar impulse project, I was several times scared not to be able to fly. You know, I, I remember when there was one more flight to do from Egypt to Abu Dhabi to fulfill the complete mission, I was so scared to sleep in the shower and to break a leg or to break an, an arm. So I was so careful in everything I was doing, putting my safety belt in the taxi, uh, being careful in the shower. I was not doing any kite surfing, not any skiing. I was so trying to be so safe. <laughs> and what was it like to land on the final leg of the journey? On one way, it was absolutely wonderful to have fulfilled the dream, to be successful, to have the entire world watching that it was finally a success. On the other hand, it was sad to land 
in the past. Because solar impulse is what clean technologies can achieve. And I was landing in a world, going back to the world with combustion engines who are polluting so much with such a low efficiency, badly insulated houses, incandescent light bulbs, inefficient heating and cooling systems, polluting ways to use and produce energy. And I was thinking, the world can be so different. And uh, that was the urge really to launch the 1000 Solution Challenge to try to go back to the present instead of living in the past with all technologies. You know, all the technologies related to energy that we use today, all the ones that are not renewables, they were invented in 1880, in the beginning of the oil era. And we had no evolution. So now it's really time to wake up. Agreed. To close, finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because... They tried to do things for the first time. But don't you try to do things for the first time? Yeah, that's why you have to accept the risk of failing sometime. Mm-hmm. Huh? Mm-hmm. have to accept the risk of failing. You, you can fail for two reasons. You can fail because you are too ambitious, or you fail because you are not ambitious enough. Kodak failed and went bankrupt because they refused to go with the trend of digital pictures. General Motors went bankrupt in 2008, 9, or 10, because they were still making cars that were consuming too much gasoline that, that was too expensive. So, so you see, failure can happen because you do very well but too early, or because you do very badly and too late. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the question is, you, we have to analyze what makes us fail, and we always have to be flexible and try in another way. You will not succeed if you continue the same thing that made you fail. So you have to be extremely flexible in calling your certitudes into question, analyzing which paradigm is the paradigm on which you rely and change this paradigm. So no certitudes, no habits. Continuing to finish these sentences, success is? Success is what happens when you try one more time than a number of failures. If I could have done one thing differently, I would have. It's always so easy afterward to say we should have done differently, but yeah, maybe I would not have given as much power of decision to the engineers in the solar impulse project, because at the end it was interfering with a with the management. I think each one has to do his job. The engineers have to bring the technology and the management has to lead the project, not the other, not the other way around. If the world knew me for just one thing, it would be? To show what renewable energies can do as impossible goals and success. I'm most proud of? Of accepting so much frustration, doubts, and difficult moments with solar impulse during such a long time <laughs> before I succeeded. How many years was it? 15 years. Wow. And last question. To take massive, massive risks for the greater good, what it takes is? I think it's important to take massive risks to do something good. Because otherwise, why do we live? What is life for? 
With that, Bertrand, thank you so much for joining us on What It Takes. With pleasure. Thank you, Emily. Thank you. That does it for this week. Thanks to Emily Kirsch for that awesome interview. Thanks to Bertrand Picard as well for his time. What a cool project that was. And uh, let's see where it takes us now. So the next time you hear The Energy Gang, we're going to be coming to you live from New York City. Make sure to get your tickets, pull out your phone, follow that link. There are a handful of seats left, and we want to make sure that the people in New York who love this show get their seats. Um, Come meet us, say hello, ask a question. We have such a fun time at this venue. It's the uh, WNYC Performance Space in Lower Manhattan. Uh, Also, if you want to learn more about live what it takes events go to powerhouse.fund thanks everybody hope to catch you in new york city otherwise we will catch you all right here on the energy gang